This episode is brought to you by Portland Distro. If you like underground music, movies, and more, go to portlanddistro.com for licensed merch, vinyl, CDs, and more. Plug in the discount code 10OFF, T-E-N-O-F-F, for a 10% discount at portlanddistro.com. This week, my friend Therese Lance joins us. She's the creative force behind the band Mares of Thrace, who released a record last year called The Exile, after an eight-year period of hiatus. So, um, so it's a welcome back sort of situation with Therese. We talk about the new record, the band, uh, some lineup changes in the band, and also what she has been busy with during that eight-year period. I think you'll find that quite interesting, especially if you're into gaming and fantasy illustration. I'd like to thank everyone who has supported the show on Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can support the show and get access to a ton, a metric ton of bonus material. For $5 a month, you get early access to the normal shows on the regular feed. And for $20 a month, that's the sponsor level, you can promote your band, your business, your project with a custom ad read. Now, after you listen to this show, I urge you all to check out my fellow horsemen of the podcasting apocalypse podcasts. On Monday, we have Brandon Legion bringing us Horror Wolf 666. We have Tuesday, Grandmaster Jackie Smith brings us into the necrosphere the premier extreme music podcast it's the only one i actually listen to though i have to say i've been listening to the heavy hole podcast here and there too wednesday of course is everything went black day thursday is necro thursday i'm back with mike scandato and jeff kashid for necromaniacs on sunday carl haikara brings us soul knocks and uh, all of us, I think, at this point, have been guests on Carl's show. So you can check out a variety of different topics. All of it has to do with darkness, the macabre, esoteric stuff. And uh, Carl and I a lot, talk a lot about weird fiction, cosmic horror, like that sort of thing. And one last thing before we get started. Just a reminder that tickets are on sale for Nightlands Festival. It's the inaugural Cadabra Records event at Cathedral in Hamilton, New Jersey, on the weekend of June 2nd and 3rd. Also on June 1st, there's gonna be a standalone performance associated with Nightlands Fest, and that's Pictures of Apocalypse. It's the celebration of the release of Thomas Ligotti's first book in a really, really long time. And it's uh, an event that consists of poetry readings and music. That is going to be at the Book Restoration Bindery in Haddonfield, New Jersey on June 1st. I'm going to be there for the entire event, all the whole weekend. I'm rolling up there on June 1st. I'm staying for the whole thing. It's going to be great. So I urge everyone, pick up tickets at cadabrarecords.com. There's also, I posted a bunch of links for this thing and hope to see some of you guys there. So you, you and I met, actually, I believe you're, uh, it was one of those like South by Southwest shows. You were playing bass in Ken Mode. And, uh, yeah, yeah, that, that was how that was a while back, and that's I think when uh, when you and I first met. 
Yes, uh, as I recall, I will always remember that because that was when I learned from your setup to zip tie uh, my patch cables together while biamping. <laughs> I was like, hey, that's, how, how did I never think of that? Like, it's it's just one cable, not like a giant tripping hazard. And I've done that ever since. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's key, man. And um, yeah, I think probably back then it was probably, the, I think it was the three-piece version of Tombs. And uh, I was probably running like two heads or something like that. Yeah, you were three piece at the time. Was yeah. that where you still? Was that still winter hours era, or a little after? Uh hard to say, man. Uh, you know, the time has been slipping away. <laughs> like <laughs> things are starting to blur together. But it might it might have been winter hours. I know it was it was definitely the Carson Andrew me version of the band for sure. But. Uh, at the time, I was also made aware that you played in a band called Mares of Thrace, and that was your your primarily that was your thing. Yeah, I was I was just filling in in Ken mode because they well they they had like the <laughs> I was part of the uh, eternal revolving door of bass players <laughs> of theirs. Uh, so yeah, I was I was really just filling in on that tour, and that was also the tour that I discovered that eight weeks is about two weeks longer than I personally like being on tour. <laughs> That's a long ass time, man. Eight weeks. It's just a long ass time, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so as a result of that, um, you know, when it was indicated to me that Mayors of Thrace was a band I should be checking out, I started listening to you know your material that was coming out. Now, there there was a lineup change though. The current version of the band is a little bit different than the version maybe that I was uh, ex first exposed to. I think, right? Yeah. The funny thing about being in a two piece is, in most bands, when you shuffle out one member nobody even notices but when you're in a two-piece changing out a one person is swapping 50 percent of the band's lineup uh so yeah most people notice <laughs> also i imagine like i've never played in a two-piece but um like a lot of like the writing that i do is just basically with the drummer and myself you know a lot of a lot of like writing sessions and different bands i played in so the drummer that you work with really molds the band so how is that transition in a two-piece band where it really literally is you and one other person there's no other people well uh the first drummer of mayor steph her and i pretty much grew like literally grew up playing music together like our first shitty punk band was when she was 15 and i was 20 and that was many 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 years ago so we just kind of like we were like attached to the hip for 10 years so like when she decided she wanted out of the rock and roll touring life which i can't i really can't blame anyone for i was like how do i even how do i even keep going like with this person who like my whole musical life is built on so that's why i took an 8 year break from playing music uh yeah she uh she she wanted to have a grown-up career and she went on and became a, a registered nurse and oh. saved a lot of, saved a lot of lives during the pandemic and yeah during the press cycle for this last record a lot of people asked me like you know was your split acrimonious like were you salty at her and like how could i be salty at her when she she wanted to save human lives instead of like play sludge in ohio for 30 people no of course i wasn't pissed at her. um yeah but after that uh after the long break the long break was when i actually decided i was going to go for it and become a game developer and then later a fantasy illustrator so that was kind of contingent on the break 
But after that, uh, uh, my friend Casey, who I had played in like a very technical death grind band with, was like, what if we were Mares of Thrace again? <laughs> and uh, it, it was such a big compliment because he's kind of like one of the unsung pillars of the, uh, the metal scene here. And I was like, I, are you just humoring me? <laughs> <laughs> do you like you're usually like a, like a tech shredder do you really want to play like my my slow gross riffs but uh like we we gave it a rip and it's been working out really well so yeah because that's uh a pretty pretty big like stylistic change you know and i, I mean it's obviously you must have been a fan of the first two records you know and, and been like okay let's continue this thing you know yeah um i also find that in terms of the influence that the drummer has on the on like my writing like i like to i like to write riffs that i know are gonna make my drummers happy <laughs> just, that i know they're, they're gonna think are fun to play and so that is definitely like the the first few records were like i, I wrote riffs that i thought steph was gonna find fun and uh the middle one and the one that we're currently writing now are all stuff that i'm hoping casey will find fun so far so good no complaints so far uh, just real quick, the uh, the fact that you talked about you briefly just threw out there the fact that you're a um, a fantasy illustrator and game developer did not slip by me. I'm just getting to that point. <laughs> you know, I wanted I want to talk about the band a little bit before we talk about that other stuff for sure. Yeah, because then that that tangent is going to take that tangent is going to go on and on <laughs> and on for. Our, that's why I want to get the business end of this stuff kind of complete. You know what I mean? Oh, it's all business. It's all business. Yeah. No, it's, it's all business and it's all pleasure. True. So the exile, which came out last year, it, I wouldn't say that's a sludge record, really. Like, there's a lot of, you know, there's like some noodly parts, and it's um, you know, there's there's some like, it's like a a, ro a heavy rock album by my estimation. It's not like some punishingly slow like record necessarily. Yeah, I never felt like even when we were being like branded like as pretty strictly a sludge band i have never felt monogamous to a tempo and i don't think i ever will like what what really what really i find the most satisfying to write and play is like that mid-tempo groove but i'm gonna get bored with that at some point wanted to speed things up a little or slow things down a little i reject that term sludge by the way i just think that's like <laughs> the silliest like term there is really I mean, genres are getting pretty nebulous, and like most of my favorite bands, you can describe them with like half a dozen genres these days. So yeah, how about just metal? <laughs> and even then, like sometimes, like so, some of the stuff, like some of the stuff I really love and I'm really influenced by, like it's even a bit of a stretch to call it metal. Like, can you can you call the Melvins metal? Like, that's a good. You know, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because as much as the Melvins probably make fun of heavy metal they're a fucking metal band though <laughs> I mean, them's fighting words no i mean i mean for real like i that's what i like about them you know i mean they they're um the guitar tones the the muted riffs there's like double kick drama here and there um yeah it's very uh sort of um there's like an esoteric quality to the way they write their songs and there's like some black flag in there. There's like, you know, they're, they worship kiss, obviously that, you know, that's something, I mean, I, you don't necessarily hear it in the music unless they're covering kiss. So, uh, you know, the irony is something that I, I also reject irony because I think that you should just like something and be into it and be like, yeah, 
fuck it. I like uh, Ace Frehley, but I, my, my band sounds this way. And maybe here and there we'll cover a Kiss song or like, you know, Alice Cooper or something like that. And uh, so I don't know. Like, I like the Melvins, but I don't like the irony sometimes that they apply to their music. You know what I mean? Yeah, fair enough. I, I, I feel the same way about irony, but I think primarily I feel that way about irony because I am very earnest in my love of everything embarrassingly earnest in my love of everything so like this casually disaffected like pseudo interest in things just doesn't vibe with me at all yeah no i i i'm with you on that um i mean i i on a day-to-day basis i like listen to such an eclectic you know amount of music really and uh it all is good some of it is like you know embarrassing maybe like uh it's not as like grim and cult as like some people would imagine you know and uh you know like, I, I like amy winehouse i like madonna you know madonna is like one of my favorites i really want to go i don't know if you have if you actually have your camera on but i just picked up a two lp set of uh the immaculate collection on vinyl because madonna is one of my favorites too yeah you know just great <laughs> great performance great songwriting you know i know that she works with the right producers and she's just a cultural icon you know and i think honestly have if amy winehouse hadn't passed away i feel like she could have been like the next big cultural icon really you know yeah i, I love amy winehouse too and that's a that's a tragedy a tragedy of a very talented person getting let down by everybody around her i'm sorry to say yeah, there's that documentary that's really heartbreaking that came out a while back. Man, and here, I, when you said that you're into stuff that some people would think was embarrassing, like, I thought you were going to get really embarrassing. Like, Madonna and Amy Winehouse are not embarrassing as far as I'm concerned. Well, to me, I'm, I'm, <laughs> obviously, I'm not embarrassed because I'm very, very, very upfront about those things that I love. I mean, I'm, I mean, you, I like everything, man. Dead, dead or alive, you know, I like all sorts of stuff you know aha that that swedish pop band um you know it's just that's the thing i don't i don't like irony i either like something or i don't and it doesn't make me uncomfortable to admit that i like something and that was always been my impression of the melvins is that like they're uncomfortable maybe liking slayer or something like that you know maybe that's like like not smart enough for what they're trying to do and and it gets sort of like obscured by these like layers of of kind of jokiness you know and um but i love their music man you know and i'm, I'm still gonna say that i like the melvins it's just some of the you know the, the the layers of irony and you know gimmicky stuff on top of it isn't really my cup of tea you know yeah at the same time i i kind of like how they consciously avoid heavy metal cliches like the first time i ever saw the melvins live buzz was wearing a moo uh, made out of fabric that had this print of rainbow colored donkeys on it. And I think that was pretty fucking cool. Like, <laughs> yeah, even no, if, it's even, for sure. Yeah. Even if that was ironic, I, is there such thing as a non ironic rainbow donkey moo? I don't know, but I, I thought it was really cool anyway. Yeah. That's actually a really good point. Um, whether or not there is an ironic rainbow donkey moo in existence. <laughs> Someone did wear that in earnestness at some point i imagine <laughs> the, the drummer was wearing like it was like a like you would think something that a fantasy barbarian would wear like with fringed pauldrons and then like a bare chest and stuff and they, there were i think there was like spikes on the pauldrons but it was all made out of blue velour and as far as stage stage wear goes like that's dialed the fuck in like that's awesome 
Yeah, the cauldrons are cool for sure. I I I, uh, I don't know if I own anything that has a cauldron on it, but I would definitely wear something that where it has cauldrons on it for sure. Yeah. Um. So, the earliest rec- record that I have uh, is of um Mares of Thrace came out in 2010. Was there anything before that? Just demos. Just demos. Okay. Yeah. And um, now that featured the original lineup and then you took the eight year break. And then within that period of time is when you sort of, I guess by your own admission, embraced your, uh, your career as a uh, fantasy illustrator and game and game developer. Is that right? Yep. Uh, I, uh, I was like, well, I guess stuff's going to go be a grown up now. What's like the only grown up, grown up quote unquote job I can envision myself having. And that was the only one I could think of, but it worked out really well. And it was honestly like, it was so intense and so competitive and such a time commitment that as much as I did not love taking that long a break from music, I really don't think I could have done both at the same time. They, they are both harsh mistresses as it were. Oh yeah. I can't even imagine how much harder it is to, to try to make a living as an, as an, you know, visual artist as you know, as doing music, you know, I mean, um, it, it's an incredibly, uh, you know, very fickle field, I imagine, except I guess with illustration, though, too, I mean, the kind of work you're doing is 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 genre based, too. So there is a little bit of that, too, which I guess could be helpful, I imagine. Well, it, like, it's ultimately a, like a commercial field, like, I'm not, what pays my bills is not like drawing whatever happens to be in my head um, at the moment. What's paying my bills right now is drawing what my clients want me to draw. Right. Which, like, I'm, I'm really lucky that the subject matter is stuff that I really enjoy, but I'm sorry to admit I haven't drawn anything for myself in a long ass time, and I, I would very much like to have the time to do that. It, primarily through your Instagram account is when I started seeing your artwork, and I was like, damn, this is like stuff that I dig you know and thank you we're when you obviously you've been doing this kind of stuff for a long time all right so when what piqued your interest in art and becoming an artist I can actually tell you the exact moment I was about five years old I was with my mom at the library and I saw Larry Elmore's cover for the Dragonlance novel Dragons of Autumn Twilight uh on one of the racks and I saw it and like my pupils dilated and like time slowed down. And I was like, I don't know what the fuck that's all about, but that's what I want to do with the rest of my life. And it's just been that <laughs> like images of like wizards and warriors and dragons and what have you has been, I'd say tied with like heavy gross riffs for like my favorite thing. There's a, there's definitely a huge intersection between those things. And uh, I guess that's the kind of stuff I want to talk about. Cause that's, that's the same things that really interested me. You know, it was like first for me, it was like the fantasy stuff, you know, Tolkien and Robert E. Howard, you know, and the macabre stuff like H.P. Lovecraft and the artwork, you know, Frank Frazetta, you know, he's like has wears two crowns, you know, being the the Lord of sword and sorcery and also the Lord of heavy metal in a lot of ways, too. You know, I mean, some of the most like metal album covers are either done by Frazetta, you know, or have been, you know, licensed by Fr- from Frazetta work or have been an imitator doing something, you know, of his. And uh, so, yeah, I guess, like, were you first into fantasy and then you started listening to heavy metal or, like, what came first and how did they sort of inform each other? 
Uh, fantasy was definitely long before uh, metal. I didn't actually, lots of my friends, like my drummer, for instance, and a bunch of my friends have like a cool rock and roll dad or something that like had a drum kit or like an old electric guitar around the house and like they got to listen to Sabbath records at their dad's knee. I did not have that. My dad's a classical guitar guy and my mom loves ABBA. Uh, I was first introduced to metal by the stoners in my high school art class, and that was another that was another real light bulb moment. Uh, somebody put on uh, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, and I was like, "This is way better than all the shit that I've ever heard before in my life." And that that was another that was another real turning point. The funny thing about Sabbath for me is like I heard the Dio version first, and you know I thought that was great. You know I love Dio. I love you know uh, we sold. Um, Mob Rules, and, uh, you know, th those records, I think, are great. And then when someone played the Ozzy stuff for me, like, it was, we sold our souls for rock and roll, like that Greatest Hits, like, double LP record was what I, for, that's when I heard the Ozzy stuff. Mm -hmm. And it, I, I was kind of scared, actually, with the song Black <laughs> Sabbath. I wasn't sure if I liked it, honestly, because it was too, you know, from my young mind, hadn't, didn't have the, the language or the tools to really interpret the music um and it did remind me it, it frightened me the same way reading you know like um you know Bram Stoker's Dracula or something like that frightened me when I was a kid after I it discovered fantasy novels I started and I'm like, oh, I like Dracula I like Christopher Lee and all these hammer horror films let me try reading Dracula you know and um yeah, it's just it's it, the intersection of those two worlds is like so interesting, especially when you get at it from a young age, you know. And um, yeah, I don't know, like what what was the, some of the stuff that you read, like after you saw that image of the dragons? Uh well, let's see. Uh, I read the I read all the Dragonlance books, obviously that being my entry point, and that was like those were fine, like that that. No, no shade on Dragonlance, but that's like baby's first fantasy novel series, which it was. But then I got right into a, I think I got right into a Dune actually, and Dude. then Tol nice. and then Tolkien right after that. Yeah, it was in retrospect, Dune was pretty dense for like the ten year old child that I was at the time. Yeah. So I did my best to, to to figure out what was going on, and I think I did okay. But rereading it as as an adult, I was like, wow, this is this is some heavy shit. But then. Uh, of course, Tolkien was right after that. You know, I actually I, had this I had this incredible uh, illustrated graphic novel uh, version of The Hobbit that I still consider one of my greatest artistic influences. Uh, it was all done in like watercolor, like ink and watercolor, and whoever did that was fucking incredible. Holy shit. Like when I when I think of like the cast of The Hobbit in my head, that's that's who I picture. Wow. I don't think I've ever seen it seen that. Uh, I saw the um the illustrated, uh, not illustrated, the animated uh, Hobbit um, movie that came out like a, ages ago, like long. There was like the Hobbit, and then there was like that Ralph Bakshi Lord of the yeah, Rings. Yeah, the Bakshi one. Yeah. yeah, they're different, unrelated, but and they were. I actually, the Hobbit I thought was cool. The Bakshi thing, the artwork looked cool, but it was like a very abbreviated version of the the trilogy. You know, the Rings trilogy. I thought. That, that Hobbit, the animated Hobbit, is definitely a classic, though. Just the songs and oh, the songs are so good. Yeah, yeah. But Dune, I remember trying to read that too when I was like probably too young. Like it was definitely dense, and the concepts in there are definitely not, um, you know, easily understood when you're young. And I think that that's a mo a book that 
is probably better if you're like, you know, maybe 18 to 25, like in that region of your life is when you probably should, could really appreciate Dune, you know? And I never read any of the sequels. I just read the first one. Do you ever check out the sequels? I read a lot of them. I, I found uh, some of the later ones a little bit dry, uh, but I've definitely muddled through quite a bit of the uh, of uh, Frank Herbert's uh, over, or I've tried to anyway. But yeah, some of it's even some of it. I'm like, yeah, this is cerebral. This is cool. This is making me smarter uh, as I'm reading it. And then other parts of it, I'm just like, just pretend bong rip, man. That's deep. <laughs> Did you uh, like any of the movies that they, that they attempted with Dune? I mean, the first, yeah. the, the, the uh, you know, I would wish I liked the David Lynch ones. I love David Lynch, but that was really not that great, I thought. I think uh, every Dune nerd in the world is going to have, like, I, I think it's really hard to capture uh, what Herbert was trying to do in a film. I think there was strengths and weaknesses to all of them. I think this this most recent one, I thought the sound design and the visuals were incredible. Uh, every, I found everything else kind of forgettable. <laughs> uh, yeah, didn't didn't everybody say that David Lynch's version killed Frank Herbert from disappointment? <laughs> um, yeah, I've heard that claim. Uh, the new one looked great. I I, I liked it, you know. Um, but yeah, the imagery in there was great because it it has almost like that. Um, uh, what's his name? Mobius. It looks like uh, Philippe Drouillet's like artwork from Heavy Metal or something. You know, like the, yeah. way, the way everything kind of has this like look to it. You know. And I really loved the uh, the Sardaukar's uh, throat singing. That was a, some of the sound design choices were so good. Oh, there was a there was a Space Channel uh, or Sci Fi Channel miniseries. Actually, they did a Dune one and then a Children of Dune. Uh, Parts of that, parts of those were awful, but also parts of them were amazing. Um, my favorite thing about those two is that when they cast people, they cast a very international cast, but that meant that everybody had a completely different accent. Like Paul sounded very, very Midwestern U.S., and then Jessica sounded very Czech. Oh wow, that yeah, that's all confusing. I think. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty solid though. If you, if you get a chance, uh, check out the uh, the Space Channel uh, miniseries, the Dune and the Children of Dune miniseries. Just for funsies. So, what what um what artists were were influential on your work, like as far as um you know visual art and uh, you know illustration and things like that? So Elmore was like the probably the first biggie, and then Frazetta following closely on the, his heels, and then there was a bunch of uh, like all the ballers who did really really beautiful Tolkien stuff. Uh, Nasmith, uh, who did the, the like the really really beautiful. Uh, Middle Earth landscapes, and then Angus McBride, who did some of the most, I think, some of the most iconic Tolkien work, like the. Uh, did I send you the? Uh, I'm trying to remember, I know I was having this conversation with some metal person who was also a huge nerd. Uh, just Gandalf uh, and the Witch King of Angmar, like just facing off at the gates. Oh, that is such a beautiful, iconic image. I'll send it to you if I haven't already. Yeah, I haven't. Yeah, I definitely have to check that out for sure. <laughs> Yeah, those are those are the two, and then or those are like the the four biggies, and then some of the lesser known ones. Brom is another favorite because Brom, that's some very metal shit. Yeah, no, no doubt. Yeah, did you uh, you ever get into comics at all? Uh a little bit. Um, I found something about the world of comics a little more, a little, a little less welcoming, I think, than the world of fantasy at large, but. 
I think like a lot of nerds, I started off reading like X-Men and a little bit of DC and then got into like wacky, like wacky underground comics. Yeah. Yeah. Those are some of my favorites, actually. Um, the reason I bring that up is uh, Barry Windsor Smith is someone that I was that comes to mind, actually, when I when I look at some of your work. And I don't know if you're, you're familiar with that artist. That's an enormous compliment. Thank you. <laughs> oh, really? I mean, you're, so, you know, Barry Windsor Smith. Yes, I do. Okay. Yeah. Just, um, yeah, you know, something about the, the, the form, like the human form is to me is a little bit reminiscent of, uh, the way that he draws like people and, and bodies and things like that. Again, huge compliment. <laughs> um, yeah, Hey, I'm just like, uh, being objective here. You know, it's, uh, what I see, you know, there was, a, a I think maybe two years ago, there was a, a trade that came out called monster that uh, Barry Windsor Smith did. And it's uh, originally it was supposed to be a, a Hulk story, but Marvel rejected it. And it's like this totally fucking heartbreaking, like sad story of like uh, this guy being turned into a monster basically. And I don't know. It's just like one of the heaviest things I read in a long time. And it's like, I don't know, like a few hundred pages long and the artwork's great. He wrote it. And it's all in black and white. And um, and Marvel rejected it. So who ended up publishing it? That's an excellent question. I want to say Fantagraphics, but I might be mis- I might be lying when I say this, but in my mind, I think Fantagraphics put it out. I can easily... Let me just... Yeah. Monster by Barry Windsor Smith. I'm just going to... Pardon my clackety-clacking. I've got a mechanical keyboard, and I want to take, take this down so I can put yeah. it up. Yeah, we keep we keep it real, you know. Here at uh, everything went black. You know, if we have to look something up on the internet, we don't we don't shy away from that. Actually, let me do that. <laughs> keeping it keeping it real, you know. Barry Windsor. Monsters novel by Barry Windsor Smith. Yeah. Is it Fantagraphics? Am I right? I'm not sure. Oh, good review from uh, Neil Gaiman there. Oh, yeah. I love Neil Gaiman. Fantagraphics. Yes, you're correct. Aha. Yes. See, I, my brain's not completely shot, so I do remember things. <laughs> but, yeah, that was, uh, that was a very powerful um, piece of work. Uh, his artwork's a little bit um, – it's different than uh, – like he's going for a different vibe, I think, in that piece than than maybe some of the stuff I was used to. Like, you know, obviously he's doing when he was doing like Weapon X or like these Wolverine stories. It was like this very, you know, illustration heavy sort of vibe. And this is like more, um, like expressionist, I guess. Is I don't know if that's an art term to use really, but it's um or impressionistic, I guess. You know, it's more of about this like feeling and sort of like a vibe than it is about capturing an illustration, I guess, you know? Yeah, he's also, this is also uh, like it's political. It says it's political and it's, he's like a, like a military, like a mutated military experiment. Yeah, it's, it's very much like, uh, you know, anti uh, fascist, you know, like anti military industrial complex, like that kind of thing, you know? I mean, it has all those those notes in it. Like when you read it, you know, it's that kind of thing of, uh, you know, misleading youth, you know, into believing th- in things and destroying them, you know. 
yeah that's that's awesome i'll totally check this out usually my uh I, I have an overwhelming preference for shit with swords in it, but I, I will make the occasional exception. Yeah. Well, you know, Barry Windsor Smith <laughs> is, is a well-known sword guy, you know, obviously. Yeah, he's Conan and Red Sonja. Conan, Red Sonja, you know, some of that stuff. But uh, this this is just like one of the most recent things I read by him, and, and he wrote it too, so it's pretty cool, you know. Yeah, that's awesome. So not so much with comics. Like the, like you're sparing with the, your comic reading, I guess, right? yeah superheroes like i kind of i kind of got over superheroes but like lots of like images doing tons of interesting stuff right now and there's lots of stuff that's very uh basically uh anything Be becky clunan does is usually very in my wheelhouse uh she does lots of incredible like dark sword and sorcery stuff like lots of like lots of her own stories and things uh, and then there's like a couple of mainstream titles that i think are pretty badass what was uh, that? Who was who that? Uh, that artist? I, I don't know. What was it? The uh, the sword and sorcery stuff you were talking about that image published. I don't, I'm not familiar with that. Becky Cloonan. Becky Cloonan. Okay. Yeah. I've heard that name before. Uh, she's also done a lot of stuff. Like she she does a lot of actually like doom metal adjacent stuff. She's done a few uh, posters for uh, Northwest Terror Fest. Oh, okay. Yeah. What's uh What's her character? Uh, I don't know if she does a specific character that she writes, but she she wrote she writes lots of like incredible compilations of stories, like just these really really dark medieval fables. Uh, I have a compilation called By Chance or Providence that is just it's so beautiful and it's so metal, like just that the visuals are so metal. I just want to I want to eat it, like I could just eat the whole book. <laughs> One of uh, I mean, the, most of this stuff now these are short stories. There's I don't know if anyone's actually ever tried to illustrate this stuff, but one of my favorite writers that straddles both dark fantasy and horror is a guy named Carl Edward Wagner. Yeah, you were telling me about him, and uh, yeah, we, we, uh, you were talking about his compilation, his Kane compilations. If I yeah, they're that. they're only available like they're all that stuff's out of print right now, and um, I have the three novels that came out back in the, from the eighties, and they have a. Uh, He's like killer, like Frazetta covers. And um, now that was like what, what actually dragged me into it. You know, I remember seeing the book cover on the rack and I was like, oh my God, this is the same dude who did those like Conan covers and I have to check it out. So, so um, I bought like, uh, it's, a, it's a novel called Death Angel Shadow and that was like the beginning of the end. I was like, I was all in. And uh, what I like about Kane is that He's he himself he's immortal number one, and so there's like a magical element to his character as well as being this like you know savage you know swordsman you know what I mean. So there, a lot of the stories have to do with magic you know and darkness and there's a there's mentions of some of like the Cthulhu mythos and stuff like that tie you know ties into it and uh, yeah it's just like such a great character and the, the novels are cool but the short stories are like really where it's at honestly i'm definitely gonna have to i can't find my freaking kindle but I'll, I'm just, i've got the uh, his compilations marked on uh bookmarked on uh amazon after we talked about it man um the 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 stock photo covers somebody made for the compilations oh, are the opposite the opposite of the frisetta art oh god they're so bad that that's like the biggest thing that people comment on like whenever i mention it i'm like it, they have literally the worst they, I would rather there not be a cover than some of the artwork they had. 
I will I will read them and then I will do covers for them pro bono as long as somebody swaps my art in for those those they're like sexy stock photos like super super jacked like stripper looking dudes with like just some shoulder armor and a sword. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, it's like the worst imaginable thing. And like Kane is like you know yeah this like muscular dude obviously is like a barbaric sort of character but. You know, he's supposed to have a beard and, like, flowing red hair, and he wears, like, a cape and chain mail and stuff like that, you know? Okay, he sounds fun to draw. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, you know, when he interacts, there's, like, giants and stuff like that, and they talk about elder gods and, you know, the pre-human earth and stuff like that. It's just, I don't know, all, all that stuff I find really interesting. It's really fun. Okay, so who would win in a fight? Kane um, or Elric of Melnibane? You know, that's an excellent question because they're, they're, they're similar in some ways. That's why I asked. Yeah. Like, you know, they're both antiheroes. Um, Kane is more of an antihero because I think that he's it's 50-50 with him the way that Wagner portrays him. Sometimes he's like a total scumbag, like bad guy, you know. Elric is a little bit more heroic, but he's got like tragic flaws and things like that. Um, I'm going to go with Kane, honestly. Even though I like, even though I like Elric as a character better, but I, I'm gonna go. I think that Kane might might be able to defeat him. Oh yeah, I'm not asking who you like better. I'm asking oh, are they meant, like in a, fight, in a fight? In a fight? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that Kane would win actually because he he would uh, apply some sort of treachery. I think he would he would load the deck against Elric, and I think that's how Kane would prevail. This is a this is a fun series of questions that we need to come back to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, read read a couple of short stories by uh, you know the Kane short stories, and then you know think about it, and then give me what your opinion is about who would win a fight between the two. Okay, of them. I yeah. will. I don't usually do fan art, but maybe I'll do some fan art of them like fighting. Yeah, I, I'm hoping. I'm hoping that the um, that the the Wagner Kane stuff comes back into actual print, like when in like a book form, because they just uh, republished. A collection of short stories is horror short stories called In a Lonely Place. And that's got, um, you know, I mean, Wagner passed away like a while ago. So, you know, it's his estate is in control of all this stuff. And uh, that pu they published a bunch of his like classic horror, horror stories. And some of them, uh, I mean, I don't know if you ever watched True Detective or whatever, like the first, you know, season of that show. Yep, love that show. Yeah, I mean, I, that's I'm I'm writing an essay about the first season of that show and all of the connections with uh you know Schopenhauer philosophy and like Charles uh, you know Thomas Ligotti's you know pessimist nihilism that informs the Russ Cole character, but Wagner, a lot of his stuff actually is referenced in True Detective and the, the short. Yes. Holy shit. Okay. I'll have to read it and then rewatch it. Cause yeah, I, yeah. I love that show, even though like there is like a relentless edge lordness that uh, I used to think I outgrew, but then I watched stuff like true detective and I'm like, nah, Russ, my boy, <laughs> I, yeah. I did not outgrow it. Oh, but yeah. now that now I'll have to read it and then like rewatch it and look for that. Cause that's, that's amazing. So is this like a, an essay for funsies or is this an essay for like academia? Well, someday I hope to, you know, I, at some point in my life, I'd like to have that slim volume of work on my bookshelf, you know, like to publish something that's, uh, 
a collection of my uh, essays or short stories or a lyric book or something like that, you know, and, and this essay I'll probably going to make available to the Patreon subscribers of this podcast for free, you know, you know, as part of the, uh, their subscription. And then eventually, you know, maybe this will come out somehow, you know, I'd like to have this, this work that I'm, that I'm putting work into. And, um, yeah, it's, a, it's, um, right now it's probably about 3000 words right now but I, I'm, I'm only halfway done with it so um it's gonna accompany uh there's there's like a whole extra patreon only um sub show that's part of this podcast that i do with uh ralph schmidt this dude that one of my best friends and we talk about weird fiction and one of the um subjects that comes up through messaging is hey what do you you know you guys always make these references to True Detective, so why don't you guys like man up and actually cover this thing and, and put your money where your mouth is? You know, you got all these like smarty pants ideas about how this connects to these things. So you know, like lay it, lay it on us. So the essay is an accompaniment to the forthcoming multi-part episodes that are coming out probably this summer. So that that's kind of the uh, the whole point of this thing, you know. I have a friend who has a wonderful, really thoughtful uh, publication that does long form, that publishes long form essays about uh, fantasy, science fiction, weird fiction. Uh, if you ever fancy uh, getting one of your pieces uh, in in one of them, I can definitely make the intro. I would uh, I would value that, man, because like you know, like I um, you know, I, I used to do more writing for pay, you know, a few years ago, but it was all like music stuff, and I got tired of doing that, and. You really can't make any real money doing doing uh, music journalism, and um, yeah. and also there was like a bias because like editors were very reluctant to ask for my opinion sometimes because of uh, you know it's um, when you're in a band that people know about and then you're writing articles about stuff it's like it's 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 awkward sometimes you know what I mean? Well, I mean like. You can't. It's awkward to give your friends record of that review. Yeah, you know, you got to like pump up your friends. But what I ended up doing was mostly like interviews, which you know I think I'm fairly good at doing interviews. So, so you know, the pieces that I ended up working on were interview pieces with some exposition in the beginning, you know, some opinion stuff, things like that. Um, you know, for Revolver, I did some stuff when uh, the anniversary for uh, Diabolus and Musica came out, the Slayer record that everyone hated. And, uh, <laughs> but I, I wrote, like, my, my feelings about it were not negative. You know, I mean, yeah, it's not, you know, rain and blood, obviously, but it's there's validity to that record. So I would do stuff like that, you know. But I was having, like, it was stressful every every month trying to make money, and I was doing that while we were on the road a lot, and it was just an attempt to try to like be a uh, freelancer, you know? So I, I retired from that mostly out of exhaustion and and now my writing is all been either fiction or these kind of like essay type stuff. Like I'm telling you about. So, no, that's awesome. Man. Um, yeah. I, I just linked you unwinnable, which is the, uh, my friend's magazine. It's really, really good writing and really thoughtful, like good, deep cultural criticism of like nerd culture stuff. Shouldn't even call it nerd culture stuff. And, uh, I've done a couple uh, of their episode or of their, uh, issues cover art. So really yeah. awesome. I'm, I'm big on like, like print magazines, man. It's like, um, 
there's like a bunch of like well, actually there's there's one that's called dark that's a um it's actually an e magazine so you know i'm stretching it a little bit but that comes out it's one dollar a month on kindle and it comes out every month and it's like filled with like weird fiction and horror and it's called dark and of course there's weird tales which has been uh, re- relaunched a few years ago and that is probably the premier you know cosmic horror dark fantasy weird fiction publication so that that's something i that's i treasure those whenever those things come out oh weird tales weird tales covers were definitely another big influence on me back in the day you can't beat it, man. Like that, that's yeah. like one of the greatest magazines ever, man. And, and it's brought us so much of like these cultural icons like Robert E. Howard, Clark Ashton Smith, uh, you know, Lovecraft, of course, was in that, um, you know, you name it. I, I still I'll always love print. Like I do own a Kindle, but like I alluded to earlier, I don't even know where it is. I love, like, I love paperback novels and hardcover novels. Uh, like I liked in theory the idea of being able to get my comic books like on my Kindle through Comicsology, but I just I just want to hold a comic book, man. I'm the same way. I mean, I some things like that, those Kane stories are not in print, so you can only get them as ebooks, you know, and, and that's like unfortunate because of those terrible covers and also I would love to have like a volume of that stuff. And there exists out of print collections, but they're like super expensive like you know, like five six hundred dollars or something like that you know yeah since we talked about it i've been poking around on the internet and yeah everything everybody's really treasuring and hanging on to their copies yeah the but like i said they they republished um like that the in a lonely place is back in print and i'm hope hopefully that sells and there's interest in doing the cane stuff because i think that would be you know, really cool. And it seems to be that there is a, you know, an interest in dark fantasy these days, you know, with, uh, you know, Game of Thrones, uh, that Lord of the Rings thing on Amazon, you know, the Witcher, like stuff like that. I, uh, I, for one, and this is a, I know not every like old nerd is agrees with me on this, but I love the fact that this shit's pop culture now. Like I just have more people to talk about it with now. Yeah, me too. I mean, I I, you know, I I thought Game of Thrones was great. I did not read the books, though. I just watched the show, actually. So. Same. I, my mom got me a dog-eared copy of uh, A Song of Ice and Fire from uh, for, for a, a Game of Thrones from, like, library discards when I was a kid. I started reading it, then I got to the part where uh, What's-His-Nuts tells Danny that he'd rather the entire Dothraki horde and all their horses fuck her than give up his throne. And I was like, I am not reading this woman-hating garbage. Fuck this. Yeah. And I just, I, I put it aside, and then to my amusement, many years later, it became a huge pop culture phenomenon. <laughs> Did you enjoy the show, or, or you put off by it, like, completely? No, I enjoyed the show just fine. Yeah. I didn't, I haven't watched all the, I think I stopped at season five. Um, but I definitely enjoyed what I watched. Entertainment doesn't have to be perfect for me to enjoy it. Clearly. I mean, there's a lot of questionable shit that I like, too. You know what I mean? It's like obviously like things that I don't, you know, I don't, I don't agree with everything that I'm into. But I just thought it was cool because um, that everyone, anyone could get taken out in that show. You know what I mean? Like, uh, uh, what's his name? Sean Bean. The guy who gets killed in every role that he plays, basically. <laughs> You know, like if he's in the movie, he's going to get killed, you know, at some point, you know. A friend of mine, back before I started watching the show, like when it was just barely starting to make waves, 
another old nerd uh, heavy music friend of mine said he started reading the book and then a thing happened in the book. And when the thing happened in the book, it made him so mad. He physically hurled the book across the room and it hit the wall and it landed on the floor. And he was so mad he didn't touch it for a month. <laughs> then as, as soon as Ned Stark's head came off, I was like, oh, this is what he was mad about. Oh, really? That was it, huh? That was the moment he checked out. Yeah, I kind of saw it coming, though. You know, the, the lawful good character is not going to last very long in in the world of Game of Thrones. He got he got what was coming to him. Same with Rob Stark. Also, because uh, he gets killed in everything, I knew that eventually he was going <laughs> to die, you know? I mean, there's only one film I can think of where he hasn't been killed, and um, and he got beaten up so badly in it that... I'm like, you might as well just kill him. But he, they didn't. They just let him suffer, like all diminished and everything. <laughs> it was uh, this um, Cron- uh, Brandon Cronenberg's uh, Possessor. He's in that movie. And uh, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's only a matter of time where he's going to get killed. <laughs> and then there's a scene. I'm like, okay, this is where they kill him. But they don't. They actually just brutalize him. And he probably wished he was dead, actually. I haven't seen it, but now I kind of want to see you it. You got to see it. I mean, Cronenberg's, you know, fellow fellow uh, Canadian. You know, he should support. I know. How did I not know Cronenberg was Canadian? Eh, I know now. So the game development stuff, okay? How how does all this stuff coalesce? Like with the artwork, you know, the game development. Like how how do you put all this together? Uh, well, I like drawing, like my whole life, like just doodling like sword guys was just like an enormous passion of mine. Uh, but I was told that the easiest way to actually like make it employable was to do 3D art. So I went to school for that. Um, and it was employable and I did get a job doing it. And I mean, it was fun for like, it's, it's fun. Like it's a fun, cool skill to have, but it was never quite as satisfying as just drawing. Um, However, it is much more employable because so many more people want to be concept artists than 3D artists that like the competition is just much fiercer and thusly the bar of skill, like the skill level required in order to be employable is much higher. But eventually after a couple of years, I did a couple, I worked for a couple of years at Ubisoft actually. After a few years of that, I realized I was just like stalking the concept artists there being like, how do I get as cool as you? So I figured I was just going to give it a rip and it worked out. So. So what does that all entail? Are you actually involved in any of like uh, like programming, or is it just it, it's like I don't know? Like I, I need to understand more about all this stuff, you know? Well, uh, right now, what I'm actually doing for work is I do some concept art. What concept art is? There's a bit of a misunderstanding about this. Um, concept art isn't really finished artwork. Like oftentimes people see like big splashy, like beautiful digital illustrations and think that that's concept art. Well, concept art is really like drawing 10 versions of a dude's armor. So the art director can pick one. And so it's never really finished or polished. Uh, I do some of that. And then I do some video game production art, which is like actually the little finished things that like finished art that you see in a video game. Oh, it's cool. So the concept art is more of just like a demo or something like that, like demos. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a blueprint for what the finished character is going to look like. And then the art director picks like the best one or tells you to change a couple of things. And then that gets sent to the 3D modelers uh, in order to like for them to use as a blueprint for a model. Or do you play video games much? I was going to ask you but uh, <laughs> about that, too, actually, if you do play video games. I used to. And the fact that I love playing video games so much is why I don't play them anymore. 
<laughs> you know, you're not the first person who's told me that. Like, they, I, I think my mom was the first person to be like, yeah, I had to give away our Atari because it was making me a bad parent. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was really, really into them like decades ago. And, I mean, well, and, and then now I see that I would just completely disappear if I, if I was into the games they have right now. <laughs> like I have a steam account, you know, and I started dabbling with some stuff and I was like, man, this is dangerous. Like there's tons of like Lovecraftian uh, video games, like, you know, Cthulhu, um, you know, Dagon, like the Dunwich horror, like stuff like that. And I was like, man, this is like, and the last game that I think I actually played was like dark space. That was like, um, like a PS3 game or something like that. And that was like, I, I couldn't stop playing it, so I was like, I got to fucking, I'm never going to get anything done, man. Uh, so I got rid of that, and, and ever since then, because like I, I ended up getting an Xbox, too, because I was like, oh, you can play DVDs on this, you know, and, you know, there's like a UFC app on it. Oh, yeah, that's why I got the Xbox, so I could watch the fights, but then it's like, yeah, I have this thing, you know, it's, it'd be a sin if I didn't have some games, you know what I mean? <laughs> So this is why this is why I don't have a console. I, I play on PC. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's like, and that 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 was a place that I didn't want to be, you know, because like it was that was during the period of time when I was trying to be like a you know freelancer. So I had my time was undivided. Like I could just I I made my own schedule. So it was re it would have been really easy just to slip into this like alternate world where I just stayed up all night playing games and that's when i realized i had to get rid of the xbox i commend you on your self-control <laughs> yeah so otherwise i i would just you'd never see me you know what i mean i had a, a a teacher in game development school in the game development a college program i went to who had a good policy and i think this this applies to almost anything but particularly video games he said you should always aim to be more of a producer than a consumer yeah like, obviously, you got to play a little bit. Like, you have to know, like, what's out there, what's going on, like, what's good, what's bad. But you want to shoot to be somebody who is putting more of your time into creating. And that's, I just have a, like, I have a really itchy, like, restless urge to do that just naturally. So I don't, I don't, like, I don't know too many game developers who didn't get into game development because they love playing video games. And I certainly do, but I just haven't had time lately. <laughs> I guess like being on the creative end is probably more satisfying in, in some ways. You know, I mean, I know that if I had the skill set to do something like that, I would probably be more satisfied by that than just in playing and trying to go up to different levels and things like that, you know? Well, I mean, you have at least, you've got a couple of skill sets that could translate quite easily to game development. I know a lot of, uh, I know a lot of fiction writers who, like, who, who segged into uh, narrative design, actually. Really? See, I don't know anything yeah. about the, the making of these games. You know what I mean? I just know how to play them. You know, <laughs> it's like, like I didn't really, I don't, I have no idea like who does what or how it's done. You know what I mean? Like how it's made, the behind the scenes stuff. Oh, they always need writers. Really? Interesting. You betcha. <laughs> so we, should talk, we should talk about this offline, definitely. <laughs> uh, they also always need people to score them. That's like the elusive. That's that's like the best job that doesn't exist. You know what I mean? Oh, that's it. That's... Not only exists, I can tell you all about people who I know who do it. Really? Yep. Man, I'm fucking wasting my time over here, <laughs> like traveling across the country, playing in front of like five people, man. 
but that's like a lot of the games like a lot of games that i play have had really amazing scores made by people who are not professional game composers but who are other kinds of musicians who are like like metal or punk musicians or whatever and those scores i always find really interesting and really good there's like a whole the guy the <laughs> you guys out there on the patreon will, will probably are are more have more of an insight into this but there's like tons of music that never even got made into anything that i've shared with those guys <laughs> so it's like i have like a huge back catalog of material that's not even never turned into anything you know just like i that's what i do is sit in my ha place here and write things and put stuff together and makes you know music that no one will ever hear really you know and and that's kind of like uh from that is where the ideas for the stuff that gets put together in various bands comes from but there's the you know the the raw materials are there and in some cases there are these like whole completed pieces that are just on my hard drive you know and i just for one reason or another i abandon it or it was something that was like yeah this isn't really right for this or this isn't like a tombs track or this isn't like a scorpion throne song or this isn't like something i have anything to really it's cool and i like it but i have nothing nowhere to put it you know i uh if we had never started chatting and I was on Kickstarter and I saw an indie game being kickstarted and it said score, original score composed by Mike Hill of Tombs and Anodyne, you bet I would crowdfund the shit out of that. Really? <laughs> Absolutely. That's interesting, man. Cause like I, 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 you know, I keep my head down and I stay humble and I just like do my thing. You know, I have no idea like if there's any, you know, like I run into people on the road, and they appreciate the things I do. And I think that's cool. And there's like a nice little community around this podcast. And I appreciate all those guys. And I, you know, we interact and I, we're more like friends really in some ways, like we, inter you know, we interact, we message each other and, you know, get their opinion on things. And, and uh, I don't really ever look at it like having any real, like, you know, influence or any kind of, you know, recognition or name recognition or any of those things really, you know? Well, I'm the same way. And I think honestly, most people who aren't full of shit are the same way. <laughs> uh, but I mean, FYI, Winter Hours was a big influence on me starting Mares of Thrace. I could see, well, I, no, I'm not going to say I can see that, but looking at the time <laughs> at the timeline, it's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, the first Mares of, well, the first LP came out in 2010. You, you had stuff before that though, right? Like EPs and or demos and things like that. Also, there is a subtly nerdy track title, song title, and I was like, I wonder if he's a nerd. What was, oh, it was the Beneath the Toxic Jungle, because I was like, is that a Nausicaa, is that a Nausicaa reference? It, <laughs> that'd be really cool if it was. Um, well, what, now that we've been talking for almost an hour, what, what, do you, what, what, would you, what do you think? I mean, that is the only reference to a toxic jungle that I'm aware of, but it also could, it also could just be coincidence. That's, that's a, I don't know. I try to pick my favorite studio Ghibli movie and I think that's number one, but it's close. So is it? Yeah, uh, yes, it is actually. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. This is a, like a 13 year old mystery just got solved for me. So thank you. Yeah. Um, so which is your favorite studio Ghibli movie? Oh, dude, that don't put me on the spot. Uh, I now all the titles just disappeared from my head because I'm so like blown away that you even remembered something like they even came together with that. 
I mean, like every now and like these subtle nerdy references, because that's like like the master, arguably the master of uh, like the Japanese animation that came to the West. That's not really something that I would expect like New York metal to be referencing, but there it was, and I was like, could it be? Well, you know, John John <laughs> Chang, John Chang from uh, Discordant Saxis is a huge, uh, you know, Japanese uh, animation fan. You know what I mean? And he turned me on to a lot of stuff. Just like I don't know him that well, but like um, he was doing some stuff uh, with you know Dave Witty, and and a lot of that kind of stuff leached its way into um, you know into my consciousness through Dave. You know. Okay. But there was just, it's that particular movie is really beautiful, and there's so many like relevant, profound themes in it. And like the toxic jungle itself, as something that everybody thinks is going to kill you, but if you're not approaching it as like a conqueror and as violent, it won't. Like, that's that's deep, man. But no, now you gotta, now I gotta put you on the spot. You gotta answer the question. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> All right, most people are like Nausicaa, Princess Mononoke, maybe Howl's Moving Castle. Like those, those are or uh, Spirited Away. Those are usually like the big four that people have to struggle between. I I don't want to make a decision. I'm like I'm getting uh embarrassed right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can fit, you can mull it over. And I'll, I'll mull it over. I'll, I'll send. I'll message it to you because now I'm just like oh wow, it's about me. Usually in these interviews, I'm the one asking the questions. <laughs> just want to. Yeah. Be- yeah. It's, it's, very, it's hard for me to have a conversation with an interesting person and not ha- and not have as many questions for them. <laughs> um, you're, you're, a Kiki, you're a Kiki's delivery service guy, aren't you? Oh. <laughs> or a Porco Rosso guy. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll loop the mystery for a while. Yeah. I like to, yeah. That, see, mystery. That's it. I like to lurk in the shadows. So, you know, I don't like to give away too many things. Mm, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> So you are you working on new material for uh, more Mayors of Thrace stuff? I think you mentioned something about that. Yeah, I wrote all the songs on the exile in 2017 when I was just very isolated and cold in Halifax, which is in a, like a small city in a small, relatively isolated city in Atlantic Canada, which is where I was working at Ubisoft. And I didn't. I was just writing those tunes by myself and. That was like six years ago now, and I'm now I'm kind of bored of all those songs. <laughs> so I, I kind of like once we've given this record like it's it's due in touring on it. Uh, I kind of want to move on as fast as possible. Also because writing with Casey in person is so much more fun. Now is he local to you, or uh, you know, because I know like uh, a lot of times like people have like these great distances they have to cover to get together. I hated being in a long distance band. Uh, I found it completely unmotivating. Uh, we wrote all of this, like I, I just record riffs to a click track and send them to him like 5,000 kilometers away. And he'd send back a, like a program drum track cause he's really good at that. And that was a fun way to collaborate, but not nearly like maybe 1,000th, like the joy of being loud with your friends in a room. So. Uh, I moved back here in, just about a year ago, and we resumed being a normal band, and it was just one of the most wonderful, life-affirming, beautiful things I've ever done. So, yes, he is local. That's a very roundabout way to answer that. And you guys have, like, a space. You get together, like, you know, a couple times a week or whatever, and it's like a real band now, right? 
absolutely a real band. <laughs> it's great. No, no, I, I say that because, um, you know, even in with tombs, like there was a period of time where we had people that lived in different parts of, you know, like state different states, states away, you know. And for a while, I, I was still living in New York, and uh, Andrew was living in like upstate, upstate New York, like a while, you know, far away. Our guitar player, one guitar player, was living in Massachusetts. We had a dude from uh, from Philly, you know, and it was like a hassle getting together, you know. Now everyone lives in New Jersey, you know. The practice base is like twenty minutes from my, you know, where I live, and it's like maybe an hour for one of the other guys and. Yeah, everyone's local, and it's just way easier. Like the there's no stress, you know, the stress of trying. Like especially when people are coming in from out of town, like okay, Ugh. we have to get together. We got to do this. We got you know we there's all this pressure to, to do the work as opposed to, you know, ah, oh, stop by. You know, I'm running late. You know, it's cool. You know, it's not like a a thing. You know what I mean? Where like, you know, I missed my flight or some shit. You know what I mean? And it's like, you know, what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I didn't like that phase of being in a band at all, like phase of being in a long distance band at all. And that was how we recorded The Exile. Uh, I flew back here for Christmas over one week. So we had one week to do it and everybody was doing Christmas shit. And then COVID happened like two months after. So yeah, that was not that was not fun. Like I, I really think that artistic ideas need space to breathe and they need time to just chill out and ferment and like if you're rushing it or trying to force it like the results are just never as good i think yeah it's it's totally a better a better look when there's less pressure i mean it's stressful enough even making music really you know what i mean you don't need like the the logistics to be add more stress you know what i mean I don't know how people like some people seem to keep that uh, going for years and years and years, but I really need the, I need the motivation and accountability of like a weekly jam, you know? You know, and um, it's, it's interesting that you bring the week, the jam aspect of things together because like, you know, right now we're working on, on new material and uh, as well as you are. And uh, prior to the couple of years prior to this, it got into this thing of like, extensive demos like complete songs you know like i would have like everything written drums this, this is my idea about how the drum should sound you know this is the bass line i have in mind like this is like the guitar parts and everything done now it's like for the first time in a while very collaborative man and it's fun you know what i mean like i have songs but i go down to the practice space and you know todd or guitar player is like I got this thing. I think it goes with that thing that you sent, you know, and our drummer, Justin is like, you know, he's like a 50, 50 songwriter, man. That dude is like, if he doesn't come up with the riffs, he's also very instrumental in arranging, you know, and, and our bass player has like a song and we all come together at the space. And it's like, it's never exactly the way that you have it planned out because of the jam aspect like you were talking about. And it just, I don't know. It's just like that, that organic vibe I thought was gone forever, man. I thought I was, I would never write material like that again. And now it's just so much fun. And I'm sure that's, you know, just riffing off of what you were saying, you know? Yeah. There's some people who've got like big diva auteur energy uh, who don't really want input and maybe maybe they don't need it but I'm definitely not one of those like I, I love collaborating I love when people bring ideas to the table that I might not necessarily have thought of like 
Casey comes from a very different world than me, which is like the prog tech death world. And while we don't always see eye to eye aesthetically on everything, oftentimes he will do something that I would have never thought of. And I love it. And I think it makes the song better. So like actually having your own, like that's, that's the point of collaboration. You know, it's like, I want somebody else's ideas. Like I might not sign off on every single one of them, but it's, I like the input. I like the, like a source, like a fresh, delicious, juicy brain to suck ideas out of that isn't just my own. Do you, uh, enjoy playing bass at all do you, do you ever have the um you know the inclination to add you know to you know what do you like I guess, I guess the question is what do you like playing better bass or guitar uh bass was fun uh i would not rule out playing bass in somebody else's band again but the guitar is is my my rider guy uh Casey's actually at least as good a bass player as he is a drummer, and he plays bass on our record, and will probably continue doing so. Do you ever think in terms of play, of bass lines sometimes, like when you're writing? Yeah, definitely. There's definitely songs where I think this is what a bass would do here, <laughs> for sure. Lots of like lots of lots of songs that I write, and lots of stuff that I like is just very like bass forward, and it's like in its creation process. Yeah, I I actually quite enjoy playing bass. It's um, it's like a different part of your brain, you know. It's like the it's the rhythm, <clears throat> but I also play it like a lead bass player, you know. <laughs> like, you know, it's like I'm like on that Peter Hook vibe, you know, where there's like melodies and stuff too, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, it's. I would not. I would totally not rule out the idea of playing bass like in a project full time at some point. Do you um? So, do you guys have any solid plans for recording and uh, making a new album, or like any any kind of like framework of ideas for that? You know, like when it's coming out, or you know, like you know that kind of thing. Oh, we do. Uh, the new record, number four, and I keep I keep telling this to the people on the Mares of Thrace social media. I keep promising it's not going to take another ten years for number four to come out, but <laughs> uh, it's about half written right now. Uh, our plan is to record it probably in, later this year, and there is a very spicy, wonderful uh, friend and also influence of mine who we have lined up to record, who I am not going to tell you about just yet. Oh, oh, you're, you're being mysterious now. <laughs> now, yes, I am. Yeah, that's cool. We'll also, we'll also have to. This was our way uh, back in 2012. We signed a, a two album deal with uh, Sonic Onion Records, who is a bit of a Canadian institution. Sure. Uh, oh yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah, and so we're we're we've finished our obligation to them. So I get to go looking for a record label now, which I've never actually done before. That's kind of fun and exciting. That's fucking stressful too. <laughs> when I say fun and exciting, I mean mostly stressful. Yeah. Generally, my my best experiences with like the music business side of stuff has been when they came to me, not when I went knocking on doors. Yeah, that's uh, these days. It's just things are. Yeah, it's just like with the the pandemic, man. Life didn't really return back to the way things were before. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like still a little off center you know what i mean and i feel like that's you know you know right now like i said we're we're thinking about our n next album and you know we're doing the business end of things and it's uh, a little bit different <laughs> yeah you know, it's all I'll, I'll just i'll leave it at that you know what i mean it's like a little not not quite the way it was before the pandemic you know but it's getting done <laughs> 
You know what I mean? But it's a little different. I'm just a, a couple dates away from having it all booked. I'm booking us a, a Canada US tour for June. And it was about a hundred times harder than the last time I did it. Oh, I don't, I don't even want to talk, tell you about just the touring frustrations and things getting canceled and, and postponed, you know, like a full year things being bumped and like, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been hard, you know, and it's just really frustrating. You did mention having to compete with like a famous death metal band in like a small town, Texas on a Tuesday though. And that actually made me feel a little better. <laughs> it's just that I'm not the only person having this problem. Oh yeah. That, that was, that was last year. That was, um, that, that whole tour, actually the whole, uh, like part of the U.S. tour was like in comp- direct competition with uh, the you know Cavalera, like the basically the Cavalera brothers tour. Like we were like one or two days behind those guys on like throughout the entire Southwest, basically. You know, and then we we would play like a place like El Paso, which you know a town like El Paso, you can only have like maybe two shows, like two metal shows a month, maybe. You know, just the you know only people are just going to go to so many shows. Literally the week we played, it was like Riding Christ played the same venue like the week the, the week of or the week before. Um, Malevolent Creation played. Uh, that tour came through. Um, and there was like a, one other bigger tour that was like running through the same town. And I'm like, man, of course there's like only like 20 people here, man. No one, you know, it's, you got to make a decision. You know, I mean, I wouldn't. As much as I love metal and I love music and I like to go out and see bands, I'm not going out five nights a week to see, you know, I got, I, you know, I got to get up for work, man. I got to do things, you know, I'm, you know, I'll go out like maximum. I might go out during the week and on the weekend, you know what I mean? And if it's a really crazy week, you know, like maybe I'll just go Friday, Saturday or something like that, but I'm not going out like to see four shows a week anymore. You know what I mean? Same, but you live in one of the world's, what the booking agents call A markets. I live in a C market. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> so like, well, I mean, it's, there, there's 1.6 million people here. Like it's not a small city, but since it's the prairies, you've driven through here. Yeah, like, no, it, I, it's beautiful over there, actually. Yeah, it is. That's true. But tours don't usually stop here because there's no. like eight, eight hour long drives resulting in like, like a giant black hole that hemorrhages gas money so so when tours come here like everybody usually goes and sees them because that's that's what we got that week yeah i mean we we um on that last the tour we did with origin last year origin and um abysmal dawn we um we did that run across um you know canada southern canada and uh i'm trying to remember the cities we played it was definitely obviously vancouver uh winnipeg uh, I don't know some other towns across that run, but yeah, it's a yeah, lot you, of you, a lot you of wide open. Here and I missed it. A lot of wide open spaces, you know what I mean. But it was uh, very cool driving through the mountains. It made me think about like werewolves and you know, <laughs> like all sorts of like bizarre creatures, like a Bigfoot maybe. You know that Sasquatches, that sort of thing. Wendigo. Those are the thoughts <laughs> I had as I was driving through that part of, uh, you know. Canada. Uh, we're we're driving that. We're playing Vancouver this weekend, actually. So I will be thinking of Sasquatches uh, as we do it. Vancouver is an interesting town. I I always it always seems like the shows are pretty good in Vancouver. It's a 
like it's a it's another interesting case in that it is a huge city and a big cultural hub but like other than Seattle and the proximity to the American Pacific Northwest it is a little bit isolated similarly to how we are here but it's really cool in that it's very very like it's a wonderful appreciative hotbed for like weird ass heavy music particular particularly of like the the stonery doomy variety so we we love playing there and we always have great shows there do you do the artwork for your records? Oh, that's a stupid question, but I actually don't know that. I did for this one. Uh, I outsourced it for the middle one, and then I did it for the first one. I generally find it more stressful than <laughs> doing art for other people's, but I, we did it this time because I, I did it this time because we needed to do it on the cheap. <laughs> yeah, dude, I, I, I get you. That's, that's kind of the things we're, we're dealing with right now is budget budget stuff, you know? I love hiring other people to do my art, though. There's so many other artists whose art I like way better than mine and would love to give money to do our art. So, Yeah, I can't believe, uh, I can't even imagine how nerve-wracking that would be. It's bad enough that, you know, you're singing, you're writing the music, you know, you're playing guitar, and then you have to channel all of that into a visual expression that, cap you know, captures the essence of the record. You know what I mean? That, that's, that's just too much, you know? I actually think it's kind of like a, like it's almost like a unified whole in which like every part supports and inspires the other part. My problem is that it was really time consuming and that like I was going to take my time doing the artwork and then the label emailed me and was like, just so you know, vinyl pressing plants are so booked up. We need it. We need the art 10 months before the release date. So can you have all of the LP inlay uh, in two weeks? <laughs> <laughs> that was that was a very stressful month, uh, August before last for me. When after I got that email. Wow. Yeah, I can't even. Yeah, that, that seems like uh, like an insurmountable task to do something that you would be happy with in two weeks, really. Yeah, but I rose to the challenge. Uh, I didn't sleep a lot. I, I drank a lot of coffee, and I, I got her done. Well, um, if you want to put out some links or things that people can check out your work and stuff to follow the band, you know, like uh, this would be the time of the podcast to do that, you know? Sure. Uh, all the good shit is generally on my Instagram. Uh, it's, see, I can't even remember what the address of my own Instagram is. Goddamn. Uh, it's Trez, T-R-E-Z underscore mates underscore art is for my art. It's mostly fantasy stuff. Uh, and then Mares of Thrace is Mares underscore of underscore Thrace because the person who has Mares of Thrace, all one word, is this lady who has like a horse account for her horses who has, has like four posts and hasn't posted since 2015. I'm very annoyed about that. But I've been, I've been for years, I've been racking my brain as where Mares of Thrace comes from. That sounds so familiar to me, but I can't place where that that name came from. <laughs> Uh, the, you know, in Greek mythology, how Hercules had the Herculean labors, like just these big, awful giant tasks he had to do to get in favor with the gods. Uh, one of his tasks was he had to capture the mares of Thrace. And there were these four horses that breathed fire and drank blood and ate human flesh. Cool. I knew it was something like that. <laughs> right. You were, <laughs> um, you know, that some of the, some of these, uh, titles, uh, pop back in my head. Uh, you know, Studio Ghibli, you know what I mean? 
Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to remember because like that that record, the uh, what what album was that even on that we did? Was that on uh, Winter Hours? <laughs> that was like yeah, that's like 14 years ago or something like that. So that's that was like more I'm reaching back into the, the memories of like you know where where my mind was at at the time. You know what I mean? Yeah, that that was Winter Hours, but hey, I I really liked it. <laughs> yeah, but thanks for putting me on the spot. I appreciate that. It's always good. <laughs> Anytime. Yeah. Well, th- also thanks for uh, for being part of this. Appreciate it, and it was a lot of fun. I one of my favorite things in the world is talking about heavy music and nerd shit with other people who love those things as much as I do. So my pleasure. Hell yeah. And thanks for listening, everyone. Talk to you next week. Yeah!